I'd like to go ahead and welcome our next panel up to the stage, panel one. Um, we're delighted. Uh, thank you first, Yelena, so much for that wonderful introduction and talking about um, uh, our federal regulatory system and, and how we can bring more financial inclusion to it. It's now my pleasure to introduce our moderator for panel one. Um, uh, Lydia Bayoud is a FinTech and RegTech reporter for Bloomberg Law. I'm also excited to introduce another Lydia. I claim actually the, the first financial technology innovation, not banking innovation, was the, uh, the, the coins. And so Lydian coins were the first coins in Europe, so I think it's kind of cool. So, <laughs> Anyway, Lydia, off to you. <coughs> Thank you, Lydia. All Lydias know this story um, about the invention of coins. So I'm uh, pleased to welcome our panelists. Joining me is Barry Wittes, Deputy Comptroller of uh, Community Affairs at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Uh, then we have Todd Zawicki, uh, George Mason University professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School. He's also a senior fellow here at Cato. Uh, Joteka Edie who's the Vice President of Policy, Strategic Engagement, and Impact at Lindup, and Tom Brown, a partner with Paul Hastings in San Francisco. So I'd like to um, actually key off uh, some points that the chairman raised in her remarks for our discussion on how credit is reaching underserved com communities. Um, and that's kind of this notion of financial inclusion not being an amorphous concept, uh, but sometimes the individuals that we think about in terms of uh, extending financial inclusion to can sometimes be an amorphous con concept. So I'd like to start with you, Jateka. Um, what is your definition of underbanked, unbanked populations, and how is LendUp working to reach them? Well, well, thank you for that that question. It's really great to be here, and really appreciate it. The chairman's comments. Um, you know, uh, when we think about or we hear the word unbank, underbank. Um, you know, what comes to mind for me is just the vast majority of Americans. It's the, you know, it's our teachers that are teaching our, our children. It's our city workers. Um, it's, it's, it's the vast majority of Americans. I think we all know uh, the statistics uh, that, you know, 56% of Americans um, have been shut out of traditional banking. Uh, we know that nearly 40% of Americans don't have access to um, funds or have access to $400 if there was an emergency. Uh, and we know that, that those numbers and statistics are growing. And, and it's uh, an unfortunate reality. Uh, but for LendUp, our focus is on that 56%, uh, really focused on developing and building transparent uh, credit products, uh, personal loans for those customers, um, but with the goal of ensuring that our business priorities are aligned with that of our customer's success, um, and by adding uh, financial education and financial literacy, but also fundamental tools that uh, the customers actually need, uh, whether it's you know clear and transparent terms, uh, access to instant decisioning uh, and where possible cash pickup, uh, another flexibility uh, for the customer, 24-hour uh, mobile um, access, um, that our goal is to ensure that the customer has the safe credit that they need, uh, but an opportunity to build their financial wellness over time. Barry, does the government, uh, does the OCC have a, a different view of, or a similar view of unbanked and underbanked communities? Well, we also want to encourage banks to be involved in, in mainstreaming 
you know, particularly people that were uh, not gaining full access to financial services in the mainstream into banks. Um, the area that uh, we want to talk about today is the ability to use small dollar loans that uh, people are using payday lenders for now. Uh, the OCC issued um, some principles-based guidance last May, a year ago, May 18, uh, that encourages banks to get uh, more involved in providing affordable, um, affordably priced uh, loans of greater than 45 days. It can be repaid in installments um, that's friendly to people that have thin files and um, uh, does not get them trapped into a cycle of debt and on rates and terms that are um, reasonably related to the bank's costs. So we have put out that guidance, had conversations with uh, a number of banks over the last 12 months uh, since we put out that guidance. Um, uh, at least one major U.S. bank has a, has a product that is geared to that clientele uh, that is picking up people that are, uh, had previously been using payday loans within that bank. And, um, you know, we're um, <clears throat> hoping that, that more banks will, will pick up products like this. Um, the uh, um, issue right now is that the CFPB uh, had guidance out um, that it's delayed uh, dealing with the under 45-day market, which our policy does not specifically address, in part because that CFPB policy at the time was going to take effect this year. Uh, now that that has been delayed, uh, and as a result of our looking at some of the materials that we received uh, and reading the FDIC's request for information about small dollar loans, uh, there's an effort underway now to look at <clears throat> whether the regulatory agencies could, could issue additional guidance uh, concerning that market. So it's an area that uh, the OCC very much is encouraging banks to, to get involved in, uh, and more broadly in terms of mainstreaming uh, the unbanked into the financial system, that's always been a very significant goal of the Community Reinvestment Act, which we're in the process of, of looking at uh, possibly modernizing, but the goal of increasing financial inclusion is, is very much at the heart of what we're trying to do in terms of CRA modernization. Do you have a sense of timeline on either of those regulatory efforts? Um, uh, I, I can say that on the CRA, we've begun a process uh, we issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking um, in August of uh, 2018. Uh, we've used the last several months since the comment period closed in December to, um, to look at those comments, to begin a conversation with the FDIC and the Federal Reserve. And I think the hope is to, uh, to get something out this year, um, but I really can't be more specific in terms of the timing. And, um, uh, I would say the only thing for anybody in this audience or who's, who's watching online is that they can get on the OCC's listserv and, and all of our uh, bulletins, our pronouncements, our regulatory uh, proposals all will receive uh, in, in their email as soon as they come out. All right. Well, Tom, I'm going to turn to you. You work with a lot of startups. Where do you see innovation happening in the banking system or outside of it? Uh, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and, and generally speaking, uh, it, by virtue of our regulatory framework, it, it has to happen in both places. Because as a practical matter, um, uh, you cannot offer a financial services product in the United States without connecting to the banking system. Um, and in some ways, 
the whole setup of this stage. Uh, and, and one of the rules that we all sort of um, came into uh, the room, I don't know if you saw the sign outside. Um, I, I just sort of noticed this. Uh, it said, no, no food and drink. So how many people threw away their coffee before they came in? Yeah, um, not everybody, because I see some cups on the ground. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to call you out. Um, but so then when you look up on the stage, right, like all the speakers get water. Right? Like that seems super unfair, right? So it, this actually turns out to be a wonderful sort of illustration of how the regulatory framework for banking works in the United States. Like the only way that you can move money is to go to a bank. And our whole regulatory framework is designed to send people who want financial services to banks. Just like if you need a drink, you have to come up here and ask me for it. I promise, no matter how desperate you are, I will not extract the maximum amount that I could from you. <laughs> um, you will not get a similar commitment from a chartered financial institution. Uh, and, and that strikes me as a, a major, major problem, that we have regulatory barriers that are designed to reinforce uh, a publicly granted monopoly. And so people like me spend a lot of time looking for places to innovate in white space and gray space uh, on the regulatory roadmap. But as a practical matter, if you can't get a bank account, you can't offer those products. So you talk about innovation that has to happen in both these sectors, but are you seeing any actual examples that are, that are working? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I can see examples on both sides. I mean, I think, uh, um, under the prior administration and continuing under the current administration, there have been efforts on the part of regulators like the OCC, the FDIC, the CFPB, to encourage financial institutions to open themselves up to practices that, that uh, were um, discouraged in the past. So Dan Kwan is here who, who ran Project Catalyst for the CFPB uh, and was instrumental in helping um, Upstart ultimately uh, get through the no action letter process. and receive permission to in incorporate new types of data into an underwriting model. I think that's a, a wonderful, uh, and to this point, the only successful example over the course of the last decade of the incorporation of something truly innovative into a um, into mainline banking product, because those products are, are underwritten and offered by, uh, by a bank. Um, and then there are lots and lots of examples uh, that of, of companies finding ways to meet the needs of consumers for access to short-term liquidity and to do so in ways um, uh, that are consistent with those consumers' interests. Um, so products that are offered on a, on a non-recourse, no-fee basis. And again, the CFPB was sort of instrumental in creating white space for those products by carving them out from uh, their, their payday rule. Um, I think what's somewhat frustrating currently is that we, we don't have sufficient consensus across the policy space or across the political landscape to embrace what seems obviously good. And so every couple of years, we sort of have to reboot and have the same conversations over and over again. Well, uh, on the notion of having the same conversation over and over again, Todd, um, can you comment a little bit on kind of, can you tee off of what Tom said about navigating the, the regulatory structures, both kind of in the, the panoply of federal regulators, but also with the states, and you know, what sort of economic impact does that have on startups or even larger institutions? Yeah, and more generally on financial inclusion, I think. And uh, uh, to, to my mind, financial inclusion is really a moral imperative, uh, which is getting people access to financial products, as Tom just said, is... It, it, 
it's like the key to the good life, right? I mean, uh, a bank account, a home, a car loan, basically everything you you need. Uh, you you got to have a you got to have access to funds, right? You've got and it's basically a launch pad for everything. And what I think is unfortunate, is especially in the wake of the financial crisis. We just uh, passed a bunch of laws and regulations that were devastating to, uh, to financial inclusion. First, there was the Credit Card Act. Uh, and the Credit Card Act, um, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon said, for example, that 15% of their customers would have to be dropped because the Credit Card Act made it more difficult to price risk. Uh, the lowest uh, quartile of households, uh, credit card ownership dropped by 11 percentage points. Meanwhile, high-income households were completely unaffected, right? Uh, uh, they weren't affected by the effects of the Credit Card Act. And then you get the Durbin Amendment, uh, which is, I think, a complete disgrace. Um, the Durbin Amendment placed price controls on interchange fees, um, uh, free checking, uh, which had exploded uh, as debit cards came into greater use, where it was cut in half by one estimate, larger amounts by, uh, by other estimates. Bank fees on those who lost um, free checking were doubled. Um, and that drove a lot of people out of the, uh, out of the banking system. Um, and they ended up using things like uh, greater reliance on payday loans, auto title loans, and that sort of thing. And the response to that was, that was their life raft, so let's start shooting holes in the life raft, right? And uh, let's outlaw uh, payday loans and auto title loans. It's completely outrageous how Washington has uh, 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 pummeled uh, low-income consumers, driven them out of the, uh, the financial crisis, and now the next scheme is let's double down on it and bring back usury ceilings, uh, right? Um, and we know usury ceilings will, we know who they're going to hurt the most. I mean, literally hurt. I did a column last week, you may have seen a Real Clear Politics, uh, back in the day of usury ceilings when we didn't have, when people, when only about 15% of households had credit cards and small dollar loans were unavailable, the loan sharking um, uh, market in the United States uh, was estimated about $10 billion, which is about $69 billion in today's dollars. To give you a sense, that's about double the size of the entire payday loan market uh, in the United States. These people were, they were breaking legs. They were, one, one loan shark said, here's what I do, is I clip the top of their year and I say, are you going to pay up? If not, I'm going to take that year. Tomorrow I'm coming back for the other year and then I'm going to start taking fingers, right? And, uh, uh, and the response was, let's call usury ceilings the Loan Shark Prevention Act, right? Uh, as if what's going on in the financial system today is the same as take, cutting people's ears off and up uh, in their fingers, right? So I think it's time to get serious about this. I think it's time to start uh, adopting policies that treat um, low-income people as valuable customers, as people banks want uh, to, to serve uh, by, uh, uh, by, by giving them incentives uh, to do it. And let's start thinking more about innovation. Let's talk about the things that, that Tom is doing in terms of serving under uh, developed markets with respect to uh, fintech. But let's also revisit the idea of giving Walmart a bank charter, right? Walmart gave up 10 years ago because the incumbent banks basically, uh, you know, blocked Walmart from getting a bank uh, charter. Instead, what's the response now? Postal banking, right? We're going to basically take low-income consumers while the rest of us get FedEx banking Low-income consumers, we're going to herd into this new, uh, you know, regulated public utility uh, system, and they're going to get uh, they're going to get payments from the from the post office. Um, and I just think it's time to stop treating people who don't have a lot of money as second-class citizens 
just because they can't navigate the regulatory system like the rest of us who have uh, done quite fine uh, over the past 10 or 20 years with respect to banking innovation and the like. So let's look at the incentives. Let's look at the people who know what they're doing, like Walmart, and give them an opportunity to start serving this. And let's get out of the way of startups uh, who can uh, uh, provide new, new products to new people in a, uh, in a productive way. Well, Joseca, I want to get your perspective, too, on navigating the, the regulatory structures at the state and federal level, because you've had to do that. What's been your experience, and kind of where do you see either improvements or opportunities for improvements for kind of balancing consumer protection, but also helping you, know, helping you guys innovate but also and, and be successful, but you know, achieve the goal of actually helping bring people into mainstream financial system? Well, I think Lindup's experience is much like most uh, fintech startups. Um, it's a very vast uh, regulated landscape. Um, and uh, for Lindup, we operate on uh, a state license model. So we are licensed in the states in which we operate, uh, individual licenses for um, our states in which we operate, but also um, we are regulated by, you know, of course, the CFPB, and then there are other um, uh, regulators in which we interface with. And so it's, um, I think there's a real opportunity for more streamlined uh, communication. I think it's very helpful to see, um, you know, where uh, state regulators are beginning to come together to uh, think about streamlining uh, everything from the process of even just getting your license. Um, to uh, the rules that are set in place for how you operate. Because if you operate in California uh, and you operate in Texas, you're operating under you know, two different sets of, of, of a regulatory uh, framework as it relates to the operations specifically for that state. Um, I, I do think it's helpful to see uh, uh, you know, the CFPB and, and just some of the work to uh, create a more uh, broad framework, uh, I think, as Barry shared. Uh, there has been uh, some rule rulemaking uh, that has um, created opportunity to just really uh, streamline and, and, and have, you know, a roadmap for, for operating. Uh, of course, we are all waiting on the finalization. Of, of those rules, but I, I do think, and I think now you're seeing the fin in Congress, there's a lot of conversation um, about FinTech. Uh, I think there's a great opportunity. Um, I, 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 you know, listening to the chairman's comments and just thinking about my own personal story of, you know, graduating college, having very low credit, uh, having, you know, no access, being denied for an apartment when I first moved, actually an apartment just down the the street here um, and what that felt like and, and having a drastic change in my credit score and having access. And John Hope Bryan, who I think many of you may have heard of, you know, he has this saying that says there's nothing that will change your life uh, like the love of, of God or whomever it is you serve in a 100-point increase in your credit score. Um, and that's absolutely true. I've lived it, uh, you know, and, and I see it. And then I think about Lindup's customers. Um, we ask our customers, and just a bit about our customers, the average credit score of a Lindup customer is 550. 98.5% uh, of our customers do not have access to a rewards card. Um, but our customers are customers who are in need of credit. 70% of them uh, deal with income volatility. Uh, they've shared with us that on a month-to-month -month basis, their income is fluctuating by 100 to $200 a month. 
Um, but these customers are also customers that deeply want to increase their financial health. We asked our customers, would you rather have a $100 or a 50-point increase in your credit score? 90% of our customers say they would rather have a 50-point increase in their credit score. 70% uh, of our customers share with us that they check their credit score at least once a month. 70% of our customers make plans for savings. Uh, but the reality of both income volatility and income shocks prevent them um, from being able to realize some of the goals around savings, and they also have an incredibly hard time accessing the credit. So there's a real need and a real opportunity for technology and fintech to really service a gap that's in the community. Um, but I do think that there's also an opportunity for the regulatory environment to catch up with where the promise and opportunity of technology is. And how difficult is it for consumers who are you know, using your product or using another uh, non-bank product to actually reach that you know, 100 point increase in their credit score? How, how long does that take? Kind of how do they go about doing it? Uh, well, of course, because of uh, how credit scores uh, work in our country, there's a lot of factors that imp impact your credit score. Uh, Linda, we did a study with TransUnion, uh, and uh, our study showed that customers who have, uh, uh, that have been with Linda for uh, at least two years show, on average, uh, they have a 62% likelihood of a 50-point increase in their credit score. Um, and so it takes time. Um, but for, for LendUp, and, and it's not just LendUp, it's also other uh, fintech uh, companies that are out there that are particularly focused on financial health, um, I think the importance is really education, uh, coupled with access to credit, in addition to um, you know, uh, looking at behavioral economics and just-in-time education. So what type of tools and, and what can you put in the actual product that will actually help the customer make better decisions. Uh, and so there are things that, you know, I think if I pulled this room and asked, you know, what are the two most important factors in your credit score? I, I'm not sure if everybody in this room uh, would know that, you know, two very important Thomas. factors. I'm sure you will know, you know, but two important factors is, you know, on-time payments and credit utilization. Are you utilizing more than 30%? And this is information that's impacting people's credit scores and driving us to a point where 56% of our Amer of Americans and people in this country have a credit score below 680. And as a result, uh, you know, there have been studies. If your credit score is below 680, there's a likelihood that you will spend $250,000 in additional fees and interest over your lifetime. I'm from a tiny town in South Carolina with one red light. $250,000 could purchase about six or seven homes where I'm from. Um, that's a lot of money that is leaving our communities. That's a lot of economic drain. And there's a real opportunity and need to enable technology and financial services, both inside the banks and outside the banks, to innovate in a way that we can meet these customers where they are. Barry, I want to turn to you. Um, about roughly a year ago, the OCC put out, uh, said it was going to make this a new bank charter, a type of bank charter available to fintechs and non-banks. Um, we haven't seen anyone come forward. There's some litigation over that, um, but it does uh, kind of go into the notion that the chairman also spoke about in terms of bringing in new entrants into the banking system. You've also had a couple of fintechs who have applied for regular banking charters. Can you give us an update on kind of the OCC's view of, of you know, that sort of activity and encouraging um, some new entrants into the space and how 
you know, what's the view for how that might uh, achieve some, some goals towards financial inclusion? Well, uh, as you said, the uh, policy came out about a year ago. We have had discussions with many firms that are considering uh, what is called the Special Purpose National Bank Charter, which would be essentially uh, a non-deposit-taking bank. Um, uh, some of these fintechs uh, that have come, uh, that are evolving, are, are not interested in a brick-and-mortar uh, infrastructure and expensive brick-and-mortar infrastructure. Instead, are looking to take deposits through the internet, through, uh, through mobile banking, and so forth. So in order to uh, enable uh, them to offer uh, products in the environment which they're most comfortable, which is online, uh, without a brick-and-mortar deposit-taking infrastructure. That's why we've um, put out policy guidance to allow these firms to come in and seek a charter um, without having a deposit-taking um, footprint or, or base of customers. Uh, we've had uh, litigation. It's been uh, litigation from some of the states that um, uh, have, um, have challenged our ability to do this. Um, but nonetheless, we have had uh, a couple firms that have come in and, and decided that they're going to seek a charter, do a fintech model, uh, and take deposits and thus go through the normal process of getting deposit insurance from the FDIC. Um, in terms of how that facilitates financial inclusion, having these types of firms more active in the banking system, well, first of all, there's lower costs. So just the sense that they can offer a product without having a very expensive brick-and-mortar infrastructure is significant. But also uh, to the point um, that they are more interested in using uh, non-traditional models for evaluating borrower credit uh, capacity, uh, looking at um, factors like uh, borrower cash flow in and out of their checking account is one a model for evaluating somebody who does not have current and credit um, to, to get credit. I mean, the very significant number of households, um, CFPB said maybe 25 to 30 million households don't have credit um, because they're thin file. They just don't have uh, a credit history. A recent immigrant to the United States does not have uh, a credit profile here in the U.S. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a catch-22. Well, how do you get a credit profile? Well, you get a credit card. Well, how do you get a credit card? Well, you know, it's that, it's that catch-22. But to the extent that they can establish uh, their ability to manage money through um, ins and outs of their, of their checking account, and I believe you'll hear from speakers later today that will go into more detail how that type of approach is becoming more prominent in the financial services sector. But it's, it's models like that that some of the newer firms are, are looking to employ. And then the other thing that's happening is that some of the fintechs, like, um, like LendUp, are beginning to approach banks and saying, well, we already have a model. <clears throat> We're using these non-traditional factors that we've been able to validate through through our uh, portfolio over the last few years, is there a way that that entity can partner with the bank? So it might be a bank offering that fintech's model on the bank's platform. Maybe the customer doesn't even know that the bank is using the back office of a, of a lend-up or a firm like that to underwrite and offer these loans to their customers. Um, another model is where uh, a firm like lend-up might accumulate a portfolio of loans that it's made and sell that portfolio to a bank. 
bank is looking for an earning asset. The bank has the ability to service the loans in a company like LendUp that has, uh, is in a growth phase and is looking to, um, you know, to maximize its ability to serve new customers might, might see as an advantage to be able to sell a portfolio to a bank. And so we're beginning to see these types of partnerships occurring. And so uh, I'm very encouraged that, uh, you know, as a result of the OCC really getting uh, very interested and actively involved in financial innovation, we created an Office of Innovation. We have a Chief uh, Innovation Officer, uh, Beth Knickerbocker, and I serve on the agency's Responsible Innovation Committee. Uh, we've put out a, um, a policy for comment recently that would allow banks to come in and, and seek our guidance on, on new approaches uh, for offering innovative financial services that um, the banks have questions about, you know, whether it comports with current reg and policy. And so a lot of these um, new models, these new approaches are a little bit different than we've had traditionally, but we want to be responsive to the changes in the market and see how we can accommodate. So I think all of these things combined with our effort to try to charter uh, a fintech bank, I think really demonstrate an interest by our agency to facilitate financial inclusion and to facilitate facilitate new models of, of reaching um, customers that aren't currently well served by banks. Well, we've got a few minutes before we open it up to Q&A, but um, Tom, I guess, what's your response to kind of the, the laundry list of initiatives that the OCC and also the FDIC mentioned in terms of chartering uh, new entrants into financial services? Is that actually going to benefit consumers? What's your, what's your sense? Um. Well, I can promise you that it, it's going to take uh, a lot longer for the OCC and the FDIC to realize the articulated plans than we have time left to talk about them. Um, I mean, we've been uh, hearing about the possible resurrection of ILCs or the special purpose bank. Um, can you explain at, what an ILC is for folks who might not know? Sure. So uh, an ILC um, is uh, an industrial loan corporation. Um, it is a financial institution that can make loans. Um, there are three states in the union that, that recognize uh, and charter ILCs. Those are Utah, uh, Nevada, and California historically. Um, only Utah at the moment is, is sort of truly offering the non-Bank Holding Company Act version of an ILC. Um, they're controversial because uh, um, they, they represent, uh, is anyone here familiar with uh, Glass-Steagall, is this a thing that people in DC, yeah. So, um, so ILCs have historically not been popular because they allow um, businesses that engage in what we would traditionally define as commerce to also engage in certain kinds of banking services, not taking consumer deposits, but making loans and, and, uh, and large deposits and commercial deposits. Um, Historically, they have proved to be uh, fairly volatile institutions because, um, because of the, the somewhat um, limited nature of their, their operation. And, and all of the banking agencies, at one time or another, have said that they don't like ILCs. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, um, like it's just, I, I find it to be like this remarkable, I, just a super funny thing. I mean, I, I don't often get sort of, um, dumbstruck, as it were, but I, I, notwithstanding the current sort of fascination with ILCs, I just don't see ILCs sort of uh, A, emerging, or B, 
um, proving a vehicle for, for reinvention of financial services in the United States. But, well, but it's worth noting that Square has applied for an ILC for yes. its lending to small businesses. And they've been waiting two years, and Vero <laughs> has applied for a traditional OCC charter, and I think, uh, I think I saw Colin running around the mall this morning. Um, uh, his beard has gotten much longer since he, he started that epic track. Um, uh, so <laughs> we're just not, notwithstanding the talk in this room, we don't have sufficient political consensus to allow any of these things to happen. Todd, you're obviously an ILC proponent. What do, what do you, where do you see uh, chartering new institutions fitting into financial inclusion? Yeah, well, I mean, not, I, I mean, everybody laughed when you said that uh, the traditional banking regulators don't like ILCs, right? And obviously, you have, traditional banks don't like competition either, and they're pretty darn good at keeping uh, competition out, just like they did with Walmart, uh, you know, 10 years ago. So I think uh, it's always going to be the incumbents are very politically powerful. The great legacy of Dodd-Frank, of course, is that it's made too-big-to-fail institutions even bigger and more too-big-to-fail. It's increased concentration in basically every single market uh, that it has done. Uh, it is I mean, not a single person in America thinks that Dodd-Frank got rid of too-big-to-fail, as far as I can tell. Um, and so it's just kind of, you know, and it's crushed small banks, and uh, it's increased, I think, the clout at keeping out uh, uh, these, uh, these rivals. Um, and, and one thing I also want to say about this, and this picks up on uh, your remarks, is uh, um, it, it, you know, there, there's a uh, sort of a, a, a lag to this also, which is not good, uh, which is traditionally young people have been a group of people who lack access to a lot of financial uh, products. Um, and what we've been seeing over the last few years is that young people are financially maturing later in life than they did in the past, right? Uh, so, you know, the credit, it makes it, uh, you know, various regulations make it harder for a college student, for example, to get their own credit card, right? The debt overhang of uh, student loans is making it much more difficult to qualify for, uh, for mortgages under the one-size-fits-all underwriting standards of, uh, of Dodd-Frank. So what you're, you're causing students, you know, people, instead of starting to get access to credit cards and mortgages and car loans in their, their 20s, all that's being pushed off, right? So you talk about people with thin files. You talk about people who don't have proven credit histories. Um, a lot of these regulations and, you know, in, independently, the whole student loan fiasco um, is perpetuating and perhaps, you know, increasing uh, the problem uh, that, that we've been talking about. Fortunately, those are exactly the same people who are going to probably be most savvy and most comfortable with turning to alternative uh, providers if... Uh, we can get the banks out of the way uh, from blocking these guys um, uh, and rent-seeking and allow these, this, these different products to actually proliferate and compete against them. I'll just make one point. Vero, which um, actually was mentioned a moment ago, has um, conditional commitment from the OCC. We work um, you know, with that um, applicant to, to get approval, and, and now you know, it's a two-step process if you choose to go with a bank charter that... Uh, is deposit-taking, then you have to get approval for deposit insurance. Uh, if Vero had sought a special purpose national bank charter uh, without the deposit insurance, uh, then it's only one approval that's needed. Uh, but if you, if you choose to go for a charter with deposit insurance, then the chartering entity, in this case the OCC, approves it, and then the FDIC has to approve it. 
So we're going to open it up to questions. I see there are a few hands raised. So I'm going to call on a couple of you at once. Um, why don't we start with the gentleman in the middle and the woman over here on my left, um, whoever gets the mic first. Now, there's the guy in the middle, and she's right there next to you. And if you could please be sure, OK, well, I meant the other guy, but <laughs> we'll get to you. Um, if you could please be sure and mention your name, who you're with, and make sure it's a question. Go ahead. That's pretty challenging. Warren Coates, retired from the International Monetary Fund. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for a very uh, stimulating and generally optimistic uh, presentation. But there's, there's an elephant in the room that's had a very negative impact on financial inclusion no one has mentioned, which is anti-money laundering and CFT regulations. And I think OCC is responsible for guidance on de-risking that had a devastating effect uh, uh, around the world of a lot of poor countries and so on. Uh, the IMF undertook a study a few years back to quantify the costs of all this, which are enormous. The report said they were unable to identify any benefits. <laughs> Comments, please. Well, um, the as with any regulatory regime, right? It's it's frequently easy to identify costs. Um, uh, less obvious where the benefits are. I would certainly agree that the existing regime, um, and this is an issue that we spend a lot of time helping folks with at, at my law firm, um, the existing regime for money laundering and foreign sanctions um, uh, is uh, process and cost intensive, uh, and that there would seem to be better ways to do it. Um, with that said, uh, um, Having worked in that space, and if you talk to the you know the current Assistant Secretary of the Treasury who's responsible for those issues, there's no question but that the money laundering regime does help prevent um, uh, um, terrorism, uh, money laundering, organized crime, human trafficking. Um, we can attempt to better quantify those benefits, but but there's there's really no question that the regime and FATF have helped to combat. Um, and reduce criminal activity around the world. I mean, the only comment I would make is that we have tried to institute uh, measures to provide customers the opportunity for um, alternative means of providing an identification to open up uh, a checking or savings account. Um, and so, you know, I think that over time has helped uh, to facilitate uh, financial inclusion by most Americans that seek to open a checking account to the extent that, you know, some of the issues you raise regarding um, remittances overseas uh, and the like, um, you know, get to the issues that were mentioned in terms of trying to uh, prevent um, terrorism and, and so forth. But in terms of the vast majority of Americans that just want to get a foothold in the financial system, we have taken a number of steps to make it so that alternative means of providing identification are available to at least open that account. And then in terms of you know, remitting money overseas, uh, we do have rules, and we expect those rules to be followed. And uh, we do expect to have some level of, of understanding of who's receiving those monies uh, on the other end. And, but I don't think that that is a major um, hurdle to financial inclusion for, for most Americans. Let's go to the gentlelady here. 
Thank you. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I, my name is Patrice Lyons. I'm General Counsel, Corporation for National Research Initiatives. You probably don't know it. It's in Reston, Virginia. But the principal and his former vice president brought you the internet, the TCPIP, and I've been counsel to them for all the years. My question and, and interest here, and it's one of the things I've worked on and uh, written on, is that if you reconceptualize what it means to be, say, a loan or a bond or a security, and you, I, I think in some of the UNCITRAL work, they call it the dematerialization of, say, a, a security, where you get rid of the paper. What is a check? Check is usually tied to paper, but if you get rid of the paper and you represent it in digital form, and the ultimate one, the big one on the block, is what's money. I've been to World Bank conferences where some of the central bankers, say, in Africa, say, well, you know, money's money. And I, well, you know, there's a whole system around that. So to what extent would the reconceptualization of these units that you'd be able to uniquely and persistently identify and there's technology and standards that have been developed that I'm, I'm really involved in called the digital entity that you can then actually do business on those in digital form using, say, a laptop or a smartphone. Uh, it just revitalizes re things. And I'm wondering if, say, in the OCC, in some of your Office of Innovation, if that's of interest. Well, I mean, we're... Uh responsive to the banks that we supervise in terms of their interest in um, undertaking financial innovation that will help um, them better serve their markets. So if a bank came to us with a particular idea uh, regarding uh, digital money in some way, shape, or form, and there was a question about whether or not it was uh, permitted or what the rules of the road were uh, in terms of the regulation of national banks or federal savings associations, We'll engage in that conversation, and in fact, as I mentioned earlier, we have this pilot um, initiative that we've put out for public comment. Um, so even if there was some uncertainty, but a bank said, well, we'd like to try this on a pilot basis, and it was you know, consistent with, with um, U.S. law and, and, and so forth, then you know, that would be the kind of pilot that we potentially would consider if a bank came to us and said, this is something we want to pursue. So to answer your question, we are uh, open to ideas that banks bring to us in terms of how they can better serve their customers using financial technology. So, so can I add? Yeah, so, so for what it's worth, um, uh, the legal and regulatory issues associated with the full digitization of, of instruments, whether they're cash, securities, or bonds, is actually quite complicated. Um, I mean, the UCC does actually contemplate physical instruments. Our rules related to custody contemplate physical instruments. Um, I, I, I think it would actually be helpful for, and I don't, I don't encourage this often, right, having spent time sitting through uniform law commission um, convocations on various topics. Uh, I actually do think it would be useful for the ULC to commission uh, a, a, a digital UCC2 um, which is the, the article that, that sort of supports our entire um, securitization and, and lending industry. Um, if Todd would agree to be the reporter, I, I, might, <laughs> I might even agree to participate again. I mean, that you know, blockchain is being used um, uh, on a test basis by a number of actors to do the kinds of transactions that you're talking about. So 
there is definitely some uh, work being done in that space on some banks that we supervise are involved with various types of uh, pilots and initiatives to, to do the kinds of things that you're talking about. So um, I think our role as a regulator is, uh, is banks come to us with these ideas to try to work with them. As I said, we have this Office of Innovation. I sit on the agency's Responsible Innovation <coughs> Committee. And um, we, we have a lot of meetings and, and look at a lot of things and we're formalizing it through this pilot process. All right. Well, fortunately, we're out of time. I'm sorry if you didn't uh, get your question asked. Hopefully, you can try and find some of our panelists later. Thank you all, uh, and thank you to our panelists. <laughs>